Welcome to the Generosity Freak Show. My name is Nathan Hill, and I'm so glad that you are listening today. On today's episode, Brady sits down with Jamie Nodder and talks about the key cultural components that can lead to a nonprofit success or failure. Uh, Jamie is an accomplished author, speaker, and consultant who specializes in helping nonprofits take concrete steps towards improving culture and engagement. And ultimately, these are really two critical factors in things like hiring and employee retention, but they also have an impact on or- an organization's ability to innovate and to grow. So Brady and Jamie uh, spent a good amount of time actually chatting about millennials and how they engage in the workplace pretty differently from other generations. But don't worry, this is not another millennial bashing session. If anything, it's actually a really positive look at the contributions that millennials bring to the workplace and why they tend to engage differently than other generations. A quick heads up, Brady was on the road while recording this interview, so his audio is a little rough, but even so, it's a great conversation. I think you'll get a lot out of it. So enjoy. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. I said, Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Hi, Jamie. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. All right. So uh, you've just published your third book. Uh, We'll talk a lot about all your books, but what started you down this path to want to write about these subjects, employee engagement, culture, and things like that? Tell us a little bit more about kind of your your story and journey that brought you here. Yeah. So I actually started uh, in the international conflict resolution field. Mm. I got my master's degree in conflict resolution 25 years ago, a little unhappy wow. that I can use the phrase 25 years ago and refer to myself <laughs> as an adult, but that's what happens. Um, and I did a lot of work internationally. After my master's degree, I worked for a small nonprofit that did conflict resolution training in areas of ethnic conflict around the world. Wow. Um, did a lot of work on the island of Cyprus, actually. Um, hmm. If you're going to do conflict work, you might as well do it in a vacation spot. You know what I mean? <laughs> so that was nice. But although, for the record, I never made it to the beach in seven years of trips there. But oh, um, no. yeah. Uh, and eventually I transitioned into doing organizational work. The conflict resolution field's pretty small. Mm. So I worked for another nonprofit um, doing diversity training and consulting. Mm. Um, and that led me back to some more graduate work in organization development at Georgetown. And then I launched my own business, uh, and that was back in 2001. So I've been consulting in organizations, focusing on broadly management consulting and organizational effectiveness. Um, But over the last 10 years, I started focusing, I started realizing that all the work I was doing was actually culture work. Hmm. Uh, And for years, I couldn't call it that because nobody talked about culture. It was fuzzy, you know, like they just didn't, but it's, it's popular now, so... My business partner and I were more, much more explicitly focused on it, and uh, and can now say we're doing culture work, even though that's right. <laughs> cool. Well, we're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about kind of culture and some of the the work that you've done, um, but I kind of want to maybe go through a progression. So your first book um, was a, a lot more of a look at maybe how digital was really kind of changing the landscape and how people were leading or managing teams. Um, can you can you share a little bit more maybe and like what were some of the key things at that time that you saw or studied in terms of digital disruption or what was so disruptive about digital at that time? Well, I mean, part part of what was disruptive was almost surprising. So my my partner Maddie Grant was was actually doing social media consulting 
back in 2008, 2007, eight. Um, and a lot of nonprofits actually were coming to her saying, oh, we don't know how to do social media. Can you help us? And she would do what I think are sort of simple things like, oh, well, let's convene a, a group of staff and talk about content strategy. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay. So she's like, well, I just need some, some junior level people, some mid-level people, and some senior level people. I need them from all departments. And they would freak out. <laughs> oh, we've never had a group like that meet at once. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. And, right like, and so eventually she started realizing, you know how to do social media. It's just that the way social media is done is not compatible with the way management thinks Mm. and not Mm -hmm. like managers. I mean like the management writ large, it is a very engineered mechanical, not natural thing, but social media grew up out of what it means to be human. It's authentic. It's decentralized. It's, it's trustworthy. It's, Mm. you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. it's based in principles that kind of don't make sense to management. So humanize was, was our attempt really at a broad kind of theoretical research uh, literature research based uh, approach to say, Hey, what if organizations were designed around human principles? Hmm. What would they look like? Yeah. Um, Same principles that, that social media is based on. Um, And that's when we started to flesh out, okay, wow, there's going to be some of this is going to be behavior level and some of it's going to be like process level and some of it's going to be big picture culture level. Hmm. Uh, and that's that that book was in 2011 that's what started us on the culture journey back again back when we weren't calling it culture mm-hmm. um but the issue was to do the work of digital um you actually have to change the way you lead and change the way you manage and yeah so we're we're trying to identify those principles well and it's obviously still some it's not like we figured it out in the last eight years <laughs> that's true that is <laughs> true know? and uh yeah, like I did a blog post i did a blog post that said you call it digital transformation i call it culture change yeah exactly you know? and uh you know we're still running into that for sure right because on the fundraising side which is a little bit more of our focus the mm-hmm. person who, who gives you a million dollar check is the same person who could be, you know, messaging your intern who's running your Facebook account. Like that's yep. blowing people's minds in terms of how they communicate and the need for yep. culture and the need for message. Like it's just, it's still, you know, causing havoc <laughs> to this day. You know, and even, even in large companies, uh, and this is just a personal experience, but like I had trouble with American airlines. They, I was flying to Florida when they had a hurricane. So my flight got canceled all totally normal. And, they were going to offer me a full refund, which is also totally normal. And I got half, which was weird. Like, and that was just a mistake. <laughs> they were not supposed to do it that way, but they did it that way. And I'd already right. waited an hour and a half on the phone for these people to get the mm. half the refund. Yeah. And I tweeted, I went back, I went old school. I tweeted, <laughs> Hey, at American air. Thanks for not giving my full refund. Two minutes later, they're direct messaging me. Give me your wow. record locator number. 15 minutes later, I had the rest of the refund. Wow. Uh, and, and it's like, but w- what's interesting to me is they wouldn't empower the staff people that I would talk to on the phone to do that. Right. Right. Like we, 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 they've figured out social media is a good place to solve problems. What they haven't figured out is how do we create all of our systems right. to be that fast, that nimble, that agile, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and that's part of my frustration is that we, we sort of zero in on like, oh, we got to do Twitter right, you know, right. Uh, as opposed to realizing, no, we need this principle and we need to spread it throughout the whole organization. Yeah. Well, and there's a slightly like nefarious side that's just until you exert a little public pressure, they're fine with just, you know, having you have a half refund. And then as soon as it's public, like, oh, no, oh, no, this is bad PR now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which is exactly, which is I'm, you know. 
Yeah, if that's if that's the way to do, I should have gone to Twitter first of all. I think that's where <laughs> they have their good customer service. Yeah. Now, so. Yeah. So that's like a micro example of kind of what it means on the front end. But you also talk about, um, you know, engagement and culture, which is really kind of the, the next thread I want to talk about and say maybe employee engagement first. But uh, how do you personally kind of define or, you know, employee engagement? Or how do you talk about it? And then uh, I want to hear a bit more how the role of digital goes into that. Yeah, so um, we started writing about employee engagement primarily because we were annoyed by the the sort of status quo uh, conversation around engagement. Most people will define employee engagement as some sort of level of emotional commitment or connection to their work and to their organization, Mm. right? And that's fine. Um, If you think of a time when you were working someplace and you were felt really engaged, that connection is going to be there. Mm -hmm. So it makes intuitive sense. Like, oh yeah, we need that. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem is once you define it that way, then you've taken away everything, anything that any manager could do to affect engagement (laughs) because you can't control my level of emotional commitment, Mm -hmm. right? Like you can't make me love you. Mm -hmm. Like this is like we've created, we turned it into something that's completely internal to the employee. Right. Right. Uh, And we've tried to dissect it from there. And so, our in this is coming from our research around culture actually, but our 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 conclusion around engagement is it's it's a level of commitment and connection that is generated when the employee experiences success. Mm. When an employee can be successful in their work, then they will be engaged. Mm. And it's like as simple as that. And I mean like deep success, like successful for me personally. Right, 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 right. Like I am successful in my role, like give me the tools to get my job done the way I'm supposed to and successful at the enterprise level. Like even if I can do my job, but the enterprise is failing, I'm eventually going to start phoning it in. Right. You know what I mean? So you got to have multiple layers of success. We're calling it deep success. Um, but organizations that, that create deep success for the larger number of employees are the ones that have really high engagement. Hmm. Uh, and I feel like we've been distracting ourselves by trying to make people happy you know, uh, and make them feel good about us um, and approve of what we're doing. Yeah. And I think all of that is, is actually distracting well, I, uh, from getting at the. Yeah. And I wonder if that's one of the kind of key differences maybe in the nonprofit space where um, I could speak a little bit of my own experience, but I think this happens a lot where like you're working for a great cause that you believe in and that, that actually makes you happy, like the end product work, mm-hmm. but then you kind of get taken advantage of maybe unintentionally, and no one cares yeah. about the success. And eventually it's like, well, that's cool that we're helping something that I believe in. But at the end of the day, if I don't feel resourced or like I'm being successful, like I'm going to get burnt out. Is that, is that kind of a fair yeah. example of what often happens? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's like my, my frame is for an organization, anything you start to do that messes with success at any of those three levels is going to reduce engagement. Hmm. And so literally, and I mean – I, I have this issue with nonprofits all the time. They're like, oh, we don't, we're a nonprofit. We don't have any resources. I'm like, it's a tax status, people, not a business model, mm-hmm. okay? Like, you actually have to create an enterprise that brings in enough money to deliver the value, deliver the, on the mission, yeah. right? Like, I don't think that's, that's rocket science. <laughs> and so we create systems where we're like, well, we're a nonprofit, therefore, you don't get the right equipment, and I'm like, but without the right equipment, I'm going to fail. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I like I work for we're, we're doing a culture assessment right now for an, an animal welfare organization, nonprofit. Mm-hmm. 
And actually, what this is fascinating to me. From their culture point of view, they were talking about how it's almost a badge of honor or pride if you're working on a chair that's broken. <laughs> I've run into something you know similar. I mean? Yeah, yeah. Right? Because I'm not going to spend resources on that. This we got to help the, the animals. We can't. Right. You know, like I'll, I'll duct tape that, you know, yeah. um, and there's a, there's an element of that that's, that can be positive in the sense of it's motivating. Um, but the HR person's like, we need safe chairs, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it's, it doesn't help us if people get injured. It doesn't help us if that's something you have to worry about on the job. And so there are things to balance on this. Right. And I think, I think I'll, if we had the frame of what's going to maximize success, Right. What's going to what's going to maximize the chances that we're going to be successful mm-hmm. delivering on our mission, whatever that however that's defined and at multiple levels, mm-hmm. um, then you'll start getting it. And sure, you're, you're not going to buy everyone air on eight thousand dollar chairs <laughs> at the nonprofit. That would be bad, too. Um, but you might give them chairs that work and you might give them laptops that have all four arrow keys and things like that. So, um <laughs> I, it's some, I think it's, that's particularly important, actually, for the nonprofit community. Is it's not about – if you understood what, dri- what really drives your success, then you'd be able to justify the expense yeah. to the board or to the stakeholders. You'd be say, look, I know this is expensive, but here's why we're doing it. Uh, and I think that's missing from, these, like, from the equation, basically. Yeah. Well, and the other, the other interesting thing that I found, too, right? So if you, if you went into a board or an, or, or an organization and said, all right um, – you've got you're spending 70 percent of your marketing budget in this one area and you're just wasting it like you're spending it poorly you're not tracking it like you're not getting the return on best like you were just wasting it management would instantly go like oh let's change how do we change this mm-hmm. right and then as soon as mm-hmm. you go oh actually that's 70 percent. that's your humans and that's your total expense but then <laughs> they don't do anything like the vast majority <laughs> of the expense is human it's salaries it's mm-hmm. like that's Every organization, it's humans. And then how little time, energy, revenue, resourcing, whatever we do to optimize human performance is like shocking, right? Like why does it pale in comparison? Well, I, I still go back to the fact that in, I think most organizations, this is true on both corporate actually and nonprofit. I think most organizations are weak in terms of understanding their true success drivers, hmm. Okay. So like everyone knows the high level success. So if you're on the corporate side, like, well, we need profit. We need sales. That'll drive our success. Like, yes. Okay. Sure, get it. Right. And the nonprofit, we need to deliver the mission. We need whatever it is. Right. We know what it takes to do that. We're going to be successful there. But I mean, like, you no, know, what's the difference between finishing this year here, like, like a little bit above where you thought you were going to be versus a lot. Like, mm. How do you get that extra extra results right how do you how do you end year as a nonprofit and have you look around and go how did we do this this is amazing i can't (laughs) believe we did this much right and i don't think people have good answers to that Hmm. and i uh, well and maybe the 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 converse i think the organizations that have good answers that run circles around everybody else Hmm. okay and they don't have engagement problems right like they don't, I mean, they have some turnover because there's nothing wrong with a little bit of turnover sure. actually from an employee, but they don't have the bad turnover. Like the one, ah, I didn't want to lose that person. You know, there are, those numbers are really low. Hmm. Um, and, and they have the kind of sort of performance I think that comes with deeply engaged employees. And my belief is that it, it it's rooted in that deeper understanding of what drives success. Hmm. Uh, 
that I think is, is missing. Um, and on the nonprofit side, I think it's probably because we focus too much on stakeholder success, hmm. you know, which is like, that sounds bad, but like, yeah, we're, if, if all you care about is the mission that you're delivering and you don't care about the people who are delivering it, you are going to leave money on the table, as they say. Yeah. Um, and, and I know they care about the people. I mean, like care about building a system that maximizes their success. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the other kind of ironies. Is so many nonprofits exist to help people and have unbelievably generous values in terms of caring for humans and, you know, social justice. But then they'll treat employees maybe not as great as as, as they would, uh, which, is, yeah. which is always kind of interesting, too. Not all the, not all the time. I, but. No, no. And I think mostly it's, it's like um, it's a lack of awareness. Um, and, and again, it's driven from that passion, uh, Mm, to, to focus on, on the mission, uh, passion and purpose is actually one of the things we measure in our culture assessment. Mm. And and I see some really, really high numbers on nonprofits. Um, but where I see lower numbers is one of the metrics around designing the organization around the needs of employees. Mm. That's a, that's, that does, that is not as present in a lot of cultures, uh, on the nonprofit side. Um, and I think there's room for that. Hey, everybody. Brady here. We'll get back to the episode in a second. just wanted to make sure you knew about some free online training opportunities. If you go to courses.nextafter.com, you can see our free courses where you can learn about things like fundraising optimization, donation and landing pages, or Facebook advertising with more courses to come. Take them from your home or work or on vacation. Actually, don't take them on vacation. Just be on vacation. The point is you can take them wherever you want, whenever you want. They're based on all of our research studies and case studies, so things that are actually been proven to work. Anyways, if you're looking to go a little bit deeper on your online fundraising and digital marketing, feel free to check those out for free at courses.nextafter.com. Back to the show. So uh, you've talked about this a few times, kind of like measuring, um, and obviously, you know, we're a, we're a marketing optimization firm, so like the measuring side of marketing is hugely important. It's one of the things you guys talk about in your books and writing is kind of how sometimes what we measure in terms of employee engagement is often kind of wrong. Uh, can you talk a little bit about like employee engagement metrics or downfalls of surveys, or you coined this term culture analytics? Um, let's talk about this. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, our number one problem with with measurement uh, in employee engagement is that we that we over measure the symptom, hmm. right? So, the, in, if you want to, me- most of the engagement surveys ask employees, "Do are you happy? Do you like the way X, Y, and Z is done? Or do you approve of your salary or our equipment or your manager or how much feedback you're getting or whatever?" Right? There's like different questions but they're all framed as do you like it or not like it, or do you approve of it or not approve? And um, the results when they're delivered are always around um, favorable scores and unfavorable scores, mm-hmm. right? So obviously if everyone likes it, you get favorable scores and you win. Right. Um, and if you don't, it's unfavorable. The challenge with that is <laughs> it's like you're measuring are people happy and they're saying yes or no, but you're not really understanding why. Right. You're not getting at the causes uh, of the symptom. It's like you measured my temperature and it was 101.6. And you're like, wow, that's, that's a temperature. You have a problem. <laughs> right. 
And then they're like, well, let's measure the temperature on your elbow and see what that's, if that's any different. Like, no, like you can get 79 different metrics that say I'm 101.6, but until you know whether it's a virus or a bacteria, you don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so actually when we do our culture assessment, we include one engagement question, which is just the net promoter score question. Would you recommend someone to work here? Mm-hmm. And you do the net promoter score methodology, you get one number. And that'll give you a sense of your engagement level. Yeah. And you can watch that one go up and down, but that's all you need because what drives the engagement is the misalignment of, of the culture and what drives success. And so the, me- the, the real metrics you need are understanding your culture patterns, right? And, and identifying which patterns are getting in the way of success mm. and then fixing those. Um, I love the idea of having the, the net motor score because it, it's a like simple, you know, one to 10, that kind of thing. But also I think even thinking in the context of not me personally, but someone else, like, would this be a good position for someone else to have? I think maybe allows you to step outside a little bit, you know, because um, I know on like Glassdoor and some of these kind of HR review sites, that's kind of a question like, you know, would uh, how many stars? But people would would recommend yeah. and like that means a lot because it's not just oh i like it here but no this is a great place to work you know that's kind of a different mindset yeah yeah the net and the net promoter score particularly with a larger system works well because yeah some people are really unhappy there and that's okay um but what you're measuring the the, the way it's calculated is you look for the people who give it a 10 or a 9 mm. And those are your promoters. And the people that say eight and seven, so think about this. Someone says, would you recommend someone to work here on a scale of zero to 10? I'm like, no, nah, i give it an eight. Those are called passives. Because an eight likes it there, but probably isn't actually going to call someone up and recommend it. Right. The nines and tens are more likely to take action. And then a, a, an eight and seven, no. And then a six and below are all the same. They're all detractors. Hmm. They're likely to give you a little bit. Someone says, hey, should I work here? They're like, eh, you know, well, it depends. Right. Like, that's it. You're right. done, right? Like the, <laughs> the initial reaction, you, you just, you, I mean, it's not, you're not a nine and 10, obviously. Huh. Um, and you subtract the number of zero through six from the nines and tens, and that gives you your number. Right. Um, which means a lot of the times it's negative, which is fine, because the scale is 100 to negative 100. Um, hmm. But it gives you enough to go on to say, ah, we are, we're firing on most cylinders. We got a plus 60, Mm. you know, if you get a plus 60, you're like, we've, most people here are nines and tens. We're doing real well. You get a negative 11. You're kind of like, you know what? We haven't really hit it. Some people are not quite feeling it here. Mm. Um, And from an engagement point of view, that's all you need to know, right? Like, ah, there's, we need to do more work rather than less work Mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. Um, then you shift to culture analytics, right? Because then you want to say, well, then we need to really dissect our culture to understand where it's helping and where it's hurting and fix the problems. Because um, every culture has these patterns inside it that are sort of getting in the way of success and therefore drawing engagement down. 
Um, but a lot of the times people don't see the patterns because they're not looking at the metrics. Can you give us a couple examples maybe of culture analytics or like it sounds very complex or impossible to track, but clearly that's not no. exactly the case. No, no, no. Well, because you can do it actually quality. I mean, it's not really analytics, I guess, if qualitative, but you can do a qualitative version of it too. We, our assessment is quantitative and it's only 64 questions, but I'll give you an example. Um, which you could even do without without strict numbers on this. But I would argue that innovation is very important for nonprofits today. Mm-hmm. Um, I would argue innovation is important for a lot of people. Not innovation in every way, but if you're not figuring out how to change things so that you can unlock value, you're going to fall behind. So innovation is important. I usually get a fair amount of agreement on that. Mm-hmm. People are like, yeah, okay, innovation, great. Here's a pattern I notice in a lot of our analytics with with clients. When the pieces of the the parts of innovation that are valued in the culture are things like creativity mm-hmm. and um, inspiration mm-hmm. and future focus, like really you know not being tied to the past, and I'm like, great, you need those concepts for innovation, but those are the conceptual side of innovation. When I when I get some numbers that say, hey, do you run experiments here? Mm. It's like, oh, well, not really. Can you take <laughs> risks? Is it okay to fail? Well, I would not know because the board would really be mad, you know? Mm-hmm. Do you run beta tests? That one's usually really low. Beta tests and prototyping. Like, oh. like, would you ever take something that's not finished and show it to a stakeholder and get feedback? Like, no, no. <laughs> Heaven forbid, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, folks, if, if you're all about the concepts and not about how to take action, you are not going to have the innovation you need. Mm. And if you if you if you have determined that innovation is really important for delivering on your mission, then you have now identified a pattern inside your culture that's getting in the way of that. Mm. That we, we talk the talk, but we don't create the processes and systems to support the action. Mm. Um, we actually worked with one nonprofit that saw an even finer pattern, which was, they were similar. They liked the concepts and not so much on experimenting and beta testing. But what they did like was uh, a metric that we look at called permission to hack, <laughs> yeah. right? Like in the culture, if I want to change something, yeah. change a process or, you know, will my manager back me up if I decide to change it? And, and they scored high on that, meaning not that it was good, but it's, it's present in their culture. That's, the, that's what their culture is like. If I'm going to change something, my manager has my back. Hmm. And I asked the, the management team, I said, how come you can hack stuff, but you won't experiment or beta test. Hmm. And the CEO is like, oh, I'll tell you exactly why, because you can hack by yourself. Hmm. You can hack within your work stream or you can hack within your department. But, as soon, but an experiment or a beta test, that's going to involve other people. It's going to impact other people. Hmm. We don't do that. Hmm. So they realized they had these little stove pipes of innovation, which were not connected, hmm. which was, not which was inhibiting the value right, right right so they were as a nonprofit i actually pretty would give like i would give them a good score on innovation hmm. right like they they're pretty good at it they do a good job but the analytics help them see this pattern which is that they're keeping it within their stove type so they're 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 leaving potential you know what i mean yeah by not connect connecting the innovations and doing some broader yeah. projects that would that would be a bigger change. So it doesn't take a lot. I mean, again, we had data from a survey to point that out, but literally you could convene a couple of departments and have some conversations about this and say, Hey, how do we do innovation here? Yeah. You know, um, and, and have deeper conversations about how you do things 
and so even at a qualitative level, level, you can get some insights that would say, hey, maybe this is an area we need to work yeah. on. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. I mean, your example, just on innovation, like <laughs> that's, you know, hitting the nail on the head for us because that's what, that's what we do. Like we're, again, we're an experiment-based agency. And so what's interesting is like you, people don't work with us unless they understand the value of experimentation and testing to unlock mm-hmm. results. Like mm-hmm. otherwise you're, just, you're working with the wrong people, but something right. switches when it gets into, let's actually do this. And it'll take six months to run our first test or And it's like, well, mm-hmm. th- we feel that disconnect immediately. Like you get this notionally, you want it and rubber hits the road freaks people out, you know, or whatever reasons. Yeah. And so there, yeah. there could be that. Yeah. And so being able to address that with even some of these metrics of saying, oh, yeah, I know you, you say this, but you know, here's the pattern or here's the silo. That's really, really interesting. Right. That's, right. Right. That's right. Very cool. Well, then maybe the, the last, uh, I mean, these are all huge subjects in their own right, but last subject that I want to touch on is uh, the old millennials. Um, Cause everyone loves talking about millennials. And one of the things that stood out, <laughs> you know, reading through some of your guys' stuff is how positive it is. And, you know, most of it is kind of old, old cranky managers talking about those darn millennials. Um, But you're trying to focus on some positive factors, like, you know, they're digital natives, they're kind of clear, fluid, fast. Can you unpack a little bit about what you've learned or kind of some of the approaches with millennials, maybe on the more positive side? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I've been doing research on generations for and writing for for like 15 years, and partially actually uh, inspired by how annoyed I was by all the speakers about millennials 15 <laughs> years ago. You know that oh they're so entitled and spoiled, uh-huh. and we have to cut their meat for them. And I'm like these are these are adults. Like, what do you t-? you know? And the other piece is like you know, the people who are doing the complaining are either Gen X, which is my generation, or baby boomers, which mm-hmm. is one above us. Um, and I'm like, folks, do you not remember when this happened to you? <laughs> you know, right. Gen, when Gen X hit the scene, we were like cynical slackers. We were going to ruin everything, you know. Uh, when I, I tell the boomers, I'm like, boomers, do you not remember the 1960s? And then I'm like, well, okay, I'm not going to judge. Like, uh, <laughs> right. Those are your personal choices. Maybe <laughs> some of you may not, but like we thought, we thought the boomers were going to hmm. ruin everything for everybody. You know, like we've been doing this for thousands of years, hmm. complaining about this. So we got to get out of that. And our approach was: what if you were curious instead? Hmm. Like, what if you were curious about what shaped this generation? Because they're definitely different, right? Gen X was different than boomers. That's why they called us Gen X. They couldn't figure us out, right? <laughs> like. We the new the millennials are different, mm-hmm. and the reason they're different is because they grew up in a different time period, mm-hmm. and so they grew up with the internet, and they grew up with abundance, and they grew up with diversity, and they grew up with an elevated status of children that changes their whole approach to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we had that curiosity, we'd start again to see the patterns. And so, what Maddie and I did in our research is we said, okay, well, here's what the millennials are saying, but here's what these organizations are doing that are that are breaking the mold. Mm-hmm and doing things differently and being really successful. And so that's where we came up with digital clear, fluid, and fast. It's not just what the millennials are saying. It's what a bunch of boomers and Xers who have created cool organizations are doing hmm. that happens to align with what the millennials are saying. Right. Um, because we think that's the direction leadership and management is headed in anyway. Yeah. And so, so digital is not just about technology. It's about a digital mindset. Hmm. It's like thinking like a software designer. It's like, you know what? I got to make this work for the user. Right. 
right? Like, no matter what. And they all use different computers and different platforms. And, but that doesn't matter. I have to make it work for them. Mm-hmm. Um, organizations with a digital mindset design their organization around the needs of the user, which is the employee, mm-hmm. as well as the customer or stakeholder. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're having customized work environments, customized schedules, customized job descriptions, one of the nonprofits that we research, they, they rewrite their job descriptions every year for every person hmm. because it's a different year and they're a different person. Yeah. And that's a digital mindset. Hmm. Um, in addition to actually, they do also spend some money on technology. Um, Clear is, is about transparency, obviously, but it's not just like sharing everything with everybody. It's, it's making things visible that will increase the quality of decisions. Hmm. Okay, so you got to be strategic about this. Um, one of our case studies for that chapter, they actually make all of their project management data visible to everybody. Hmm. Everybody knows where everybody is in their work. Yeah, I know where the CEO is on his work because it's visible. And But it's not like I'm checking up on everybody. What happens is I, as an individual, can suddenly make my own decisions about when to stop my work and when to go help somebody else. Mm-hmm. And those decisions are better, and I didn't need a manager to tell me that. Yeah. And I didn't, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it enables better decision-making by making that. So, so you have to figure out what, what to make visible to make the decisions better. Um, and then fluid is about hierarchy, which we originally thought that chapter is going to be called flat. Cause like, you know, that's the, all the rage now, like no more hierarchy, right? <laughs> well, we did the research. Turns out hierarchy is really important. Um, <laughs> And without hierarchy, humans spend too much time trying to figure out who's in charge. Mm-hmm. So we need the simplification of hierarchy, um, but we need it to be flexible. Hmm. And it's not. Um, but there's a healthcare uh, uh, organization in, in uh, Nebraska that we found that manages to have a traditional hierarchy, but in the moment, it's the person who knows the most about that patient's hopes and dreams hmm. that gets the floor. Hmm. And that's because they're doing rehabilitation work with people with brain injuries. Like this is not just sort of regular healthcare. This is hard work. And so because they knew that to do the healthcare work, you have to have a personal connection. Hmm. Then they built that into their hierarchy. So there are times where the night watch person's leading the meeting Hmm. because that person hears the nightmares. So that person knows more about that patient. So we listen to that person. Yeah. But at other times, if that person doesn't know the details about the patient, we don't listen to them on terms of their care. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So there's some, there's some fluidity, but it's based on a really clear principles. Hmm. Um, and then the last one was fast. And that's, that's like, like ridiculous speed, like the kind of speed where you're like, wow, how did, like, how do we even do that? Um, and I always tell managers don't like it when I tell them what the secret to that speed is. The secret is you have to give up control. <laughs> And it's a quote from Mario Andretti, right? If, if, if everything appears to be under control, you're just not going fast enough. <laughs> um, and you, it really, to, to achieve that kind of speed, which we've seen in organizations, you have to give up what manage, traditional management says you should control. Yeah. Uh, which means you have to find something that you can trust in, mm-hmm. right? You're not going to give up control unless I can trust in something. So actually our case study for that one was a bank, believe it or not. <laughs> Um, in a right speed in a regulated industry, but they give their loan decisions twice as fast as their competitors without incurring any additional risk. Hmm. So 
their bad loan loan rate is the same or better than their competitors, but they move twice as fast. Wow. And what they trust in is the power of personal relationships. Hmm. If they believe if they invest in relationships, both in their communities and among their customers and internally among staff, if the relationships are super strong, then I can trust you to make decisions. Right. And you don't have to check and I can give you a higher loan limit um, because you know more. Yeah. And so when they know they can trust in that, they let go of the control and that unlocks the speed. Yeah. So again, that's another one where it's context specific. You, you'll have to figure out as a nonprofit, what could I trust in that would enable that kind of letting go of control? Yeah. Because um, when I can do that, then I can get the speed. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember. So yeah, those were the four principles we, we pulled out of the research. That's, that's awesome. Um, I'm just on that last, I remember, I mean, I don't know how long ago, but I, I read a book, Speed of Trust. And yep. like totally reshaped how I thought kind of as a manager and what you needed to do. And it's, it's like taking the training wheels off the kid, you know, your kid's bike, it's freaky, but then they can go faster and farther and, you know, right. do so much more right. and uh, just, yeah, how much that means to results and just experiencing not having that in a job too. It's crippling when you don't get it, you know, you're just desperate. Yeah. Please take yeah. these training wheels off and you don't have it. And then you go, you're even slower now because you're upset and you know, that's, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yep. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Those are great. Um, any like quick tips? I mean, you've given us like great little frameworks, but uh, you know, whether things to not measure or whether it's dealing with millennials, specifically, you know, removing control, you've given some of those, but do you ever have kind of like a tip or two just kind of walking by when you hand, hand out tips and advice? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, the, the number one tip when it comes to culture and engagement mm -hmm. is, is spend some time articulating what your culture actually is. Mm. That's it. Stop. Don't start with what your ideal culture is. Don't, for the love of all things holy, don't come up with core values. Because <laughs> um, I know what your core values are. They're integrity and honesty and excellence and quality. I'm like, really? You know, uh, thanks for distinguishing yourself from all those companies that value lying and deceit. You know, like, so stop with the ideals. The ideals come later. Mm. They're important. But but double down on your efforts to say, no, this is what our culture actually is. Mm. This is the kind of, this is, these are the behaviors we value here. And these are the behaviors we don't value here. Mm -hmm. Start with that. Because if you get that wrong, mm. then the next steps of saying, well, what should we be and what drives our success? You're going to be off because you didn't get this right. right. And your people won't trust you because you didn't get that right. Right. If you say, well, we have a culture of integrity and honesty, and you're like, well, no, we don't, right? <laughs> if the people don't believe it, then they've already lost right. it. So whatever you do, and again, you can, you, can, you can get fancy and develop surveys. You can just get, convene some people, have some conversations. However you're going to do it, hmm. what's it like? How do we do it here? How do we do transparency? How do we do collaboration? How do we do agility and innovation? I'd start with those four. Awesome. Um, and then, so, and then go from there to your ideals and what's going to work. Yeah. Um, and then the number one tip that I like to give for, for, for managing millennials and attracting millennials, which is an issue because they are the largest segment of the workforce now, mm. um, is, and this is particularly for boomers and Xers, although it applies across the board, get much better at explaining why. Mm. Don't just tell people to do things. Mm. Tell them we're doing it. And here's why hmm. you need to do this 
because when you do it this way, it has these results. It gets this better. It does that. Like, and I, I, I think Gen X and boomers, we were raised in our organizational environments where no one explained anything. Right. 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 There's no why. Right. Like it's you just go, yeah. this is, I'm the boss. Why do you think, you know? Yeah. And so we, as, even though we didn't like that when that happened to us, we haven't developed the skill, right? Mm. The capacity mm-hmm. of quickly explaining why, mm. of having it all be in one sentence, right? Hey, we're going to go this way because we tried this and this doesn't work. And the, so this is what the strategy we're doing. Like, right. we're not good at articulating that. But the millennials with access to the internet their whole lives have always gotten an explanation. Mm. It may not have been the right one or, or whatever, but there was an explanation. Mm. They could find out why. They could find out at least why some people think why, mm. and they could find it out instantly, and they could ask their networks and find that out. Right. So to not say why, you lose them right there. Right. Um, and all the people that say, well, they, they're always complaining, and they don't want to do what we're telling them to do. You'd be amazed at how much they will do and how little they will resist when they understand the why. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, and understand the, the you know, people tell me all the time, well, people resist change. And I'm like, you know what? People don't resist change. People resist doing things they think are stupid. <laughs> okay. And they resist doing things that don't make sense. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you can make it, have it make sense to them. Yeah. They still may not like it. They still may not want to do it. They still may not want to work for you. That's fine. But the why piece uh, unlocks a lot of possible uh, momentum and movement. Yeah. Uh, if we would just get better at explaining it. Awesome. That's a great. Great tip and a great place to end. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show and yeah. sharing. Uh, I, I loved it. Um, where can people listening find out more about you and your work? So our company website is humanworkplaces.net. Um, and uh, you can also find out more about my speaking and my blog at, at uh, jamienotter.com. So J-A-M-I-E-N-O-T-T. Awesome. Thank you. And we'll be share be sure to share uh that out when we yep. uh, uh publish the pod. So thank you again, Jamie, and uh, all the best in your work. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Hey, this is Brady, and I just want to say thank you for listening to the Generosity Freak Show. If you want to get all future episodes, please be sure to subscribe at generosityfreakshow.com, or you can just search the Generosity Freak Show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. So if you have comments, questions, feedback, you can email us at podcast at next after. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, the Generosity Freak Show is produced by Next After, where I work. It, Next After is an online fundraising research lab that works with nonprofits to help them grow their online fundraising. And our mission is to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world. You can learn more about us and what we're up to and see our latest research at nextafter.com. Lastly, this show would not be possible without my co-host, Tim Kachuriak, and our amazing mixologist and producer, Nathan Hill. So many, many thanks to them. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week.